Today, I'm going to read one story from my new book, Straight White Christian Man. Mr. Reagan. Straight White Christian Man, Chapter One, Leisure Games. It was getting on in the evening in the little bar at the corner of Exeter and Boylston. Murray was about done with his pint of cider, and everybody was well happy. Everybody except Murray, of course. Drink never did much for Murray except put a sweet taste on his tongue, never sweet enough to extinguish the overwhelming bitterness within him, but it was something. So he sat, as usual, head over pint, sulking. There was something therapeutic about dwelling in misery, seasoned with the sharp vulgarity of inane conversation. The first time I passed out from drinking, said Brittany, I think I had the flu, so I don't think it counts. Three thousand years and still the same idiotic dialogue, Murray mumbled to himself. You know what I wonder sometimes, started John. I wonder what people in the future will think of us. What do you mean? asked Brittany. Do you think they might dig up bottles, examine trace remnants of beer, and think that it was some kind of precious elixir that we drank only on religious occasions? Or are they going to realize that it was just a pub? Oh, they'll be all sophisticated and smart in the future. We'll be idiots compared to them. They'll know it's a bar. See, I don't think so. I think that's what we think. We think we're smarter than the past civilizations, but, but I don't know. I don't think humans were ever any stupider. I think we just learn more, that we build on previous knowledge. But we don't actually get any more intelligent. Ha, that's wrong, said Brittany. Yeah, you're crazy, Stephanie agreed. Any scientist will tell you, said Anthony, that people have been getting smarter for thousands and thousands of years, John. Yeah, it's just common sense, added Caroline. Nope, John is right, said Murray. Everybody turned. Scientists are just arrogant children playing detective for money. Well, except perhaps chemists. Anyway, the point is, people were always just as intelligent as all of you. Of course, that's not saying too terribly much. Caroline's brows knit with frustration. She threw her lime at Murray, and Brittany followed suit. No, it, it's true. I know, said Murray. I know you're old, Murray, but you're not that old. You don't know what people were like thousands of years ago, scolded Caroline. That's the whole point. They didn't write books. It's all speculation. You can't say things like, I know. Your severity completely undermines your argument. You weren't there. I was there, said Murray, downing the last nip. This broke the tension. Everybody chortled, or at least smiled. Really? Murray the Mystery Man is immortal, is he? said Caroline. The Highlander! growled Anthony in a rough Scottish accent. I'm not the Highlander. You want to know what happened to me? Yeah, 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 said John, smiling, a little bit more animated now. I'm sick of armchair philosophy. I want a story. Yeah, I want a story too, Brittany agreed as she squeezed John's arm affectionately. Okay, this is the story of my existence, said Murray, and he lowered his voice to a whisper. But you can't tell anybody. It's a secret. I shouldn't even be telling you. Everybody agreed. They were now brimming with giddy anticipation. Our lips are sealed, John said, playing along. Many, many years ago, there was no earth and no hell. There was only heaven. It was all any of us knew. Who? asked Brittany. The angels. There were awes all around, and Murray continued. That explains everything, said Anthony with the driest of sarcasm. Everybody laughed. Some of us angels didn't much like being just angels, and wondered what it would be like to be gods. It wasn't that we didn't like our lives. It was wonderful in heaven. We just... I don't know. So anyway, we attacked God. This was a very bad idea. Now, we knew that God had created us somehow, and we had always appreciated that. But somehow it got into our heads that just because he created us, it didn't mean that he might not have created us stronger than him, at least in numbers. Well, 
he did not make us stronger than him. In fact, to say we are weaker is a gross understatement. It was pathetic. It was the greatest show of hubris in the history of living beings, and it ended in total humiliation. It's embarrassing for me to talk about even now. God explained to us that our lack of gratitude for existence meant that we would have to suffer. So we were made a place that we could rule over. Hell. Murray the demon, quipped Anthony. That's way cooler than being an angel, mate. Everyone laughed a little. It really isn't, said Murray. Now shut it and listen. After the rebellion, no more angels could be created. They would always know they would be sent to hell if they did anything wrong. That's why this world was created. Earth was formed to facilitate the development of new sentient beings. You guys. On Earth, no one can know by evidence that God exists. One may only know by instruction or intrinsic understanding. That's why you guys were born here and not in heaven. But anyway, I'm getting away from the story. God allowed us one way to get out of hell. An escape clause. The demon had to endure a two-part trial. First... A demon must live here on earth, fighting an angel of heaven until we vanquish him. Then, after we win that, we have to go through a second trial. We must be born again on earth as a human and live a normal life. And then, if we're good enough, God will admit us to heaven, just like any ordinary human. But that doesn't even matter, because the first part of the trial is impossible. Angels are superior to demons. We've had our wings clipped, you see. An angel of God will always defeat a demon of hell in battle, so I can't win. It's impossible, so why even try? And once you start the trial, you can't go back. You're trapped here. That's why no other demons ever exploited the clause. No one wanted to get trapped on earth in a never-ending battle fighting an angel that they can never defeat. So why'd you do it? asked Brittany, now quite engrossed in the tale. I don't know, said Murray. I'm an idiot. I guess I, I, guess I really just wanted to get back. I suppose I thought I could win, same hubris that got me in trouble in the first place. Wait, 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 said John. So, what is this fighting? Are you, you guys using swords or guns, or is it like a fist fight? My money's on swords. It's swords, right? It, oh, it has to be swords, said Caroline. Is it some epic sky battle, or does it take place down in the murky depths of the earth? Asked Anthony. Why are you never beat up when we see you, said Brittany. Okay, 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 L- listen. It's not really fighting. God doesn't much care for that sort of thing these days. We mostly just play leisure games. Everybody erupted in laughter. Murray just ordered another pint. Leisure games? asked John. Like croquet? Yeah. Chess, badminton, said Murray. Last year it was mostly trivial pursuit. This year we agreed to tennis. The friends laughed still more. They, they all loved the story. The worst part is that even if I do win, I'm just born into this world as a human, Murray continued. And if I screw up that trial... I go right back down to hell. I'm just fighting for the chance to get up there. It's miserable. So you can't win? Ever? Asked John. Nope. You know, we should all do a poker night, seeing as you you can't win anything. Joked Anthony. (laughs) That's funny, Murray laughed. Sorry, it uh, doesn't work with humans. I may not be able to beat an angel in anything, but I'm still superior to regular people. Against humans, I can't lose. Oh, perfect. You can fill in for Philippe, said Anthony, half-joking. Actually, yeah, said John. Seriously, are you, are you good at soccer? I can't lose, repeated Murray. Okay, yeah, but I, I don't mean in the context of the demon story, John insisted. I mean in real life. Can you play? I'm team captain. I, I need to know, seriously. Yeah, said Murray. I'm, I'm good. I'm good at every sport. Okay, awesome. It's settled. Thursday at 8 a.m. You gonna be there? I'll, I'll be there. Brilliant. You're a good man, Murray, said John. I'll text you the address. They all toasted the new replacement player and diverted themselves well into the morning with standard idle banter. The next day, Murray was out early to Chestnut Hill at the country club. He was meeting Johan for tennis. 
A thick mist had descended onto the court, and, despite the inevitable loss, it would be a picturesque game. "'Do you want to serve first, or shall I?' asked Johannes. "'Whatever,' Murray replied. "'I'll serve.' "'Don't tell the boss, Murray,' said Johannes. "'But I've always admired your attitude toward this whole trial. "'What has it been? 2,793 years? "'You never lose your sense of humor.' "'Thanks,' said Murray dryly. "'Murray hit a ferocious first serve, returned effortlessly by Johannes. "'The ball shot past Murray like a bullet. "'The speed and precision of Johannes's returns were astonishing.' Johannes's skill would have been something truly magnificent to behold, even by Murray, had that skill not been the very cage keeping him imprisoned. "'Could you at least pretend you're working for this?' said Murray. "'Produce some fake sweat or something?' "'Sorry, old man.' Johannes took a breath and said about panting and feigning intensity. He wiped his brow. "'You know what? That just seems patronizing now,' said Murray. Johannes straightened himself again. "'Sorry,' he replied. Murray served. Johannes returned it with a no-look backhand and again won the point." Murray rolled his eyes. This sort of play went on for another hour until the match was won. Johannes would occasionally permit a rally and often lead Murray to a sliver of hope, but Johannes never gave up a point. Same time tomorrow? asked Johannes. No, actually. I agreed to play soccer with some humans this week. Really? I thought you hated playing humans. I, I think you referred to it as hell on earth, you said. The sting of failure is far more bitter having, having tasted victory. Yeah, I don't know, said Murray. They're my friends, I, I guess. All right, well, you know, you'll have to make it up next week. Those are the rules. I'll call you when I want to play again, said Murray. You know the number, said Johannes. The next day, Murray was on the soccer pitch kicking a ball around with relative ease. The smell of freshly cut grass and the chill of the Massachusetts morning air was an invigorating combination. One by one, his friends arrived, followed by the members of the opposing team. Thanks for this, Murray, said Anthony as he walked onto the field. No problem, said Murray. Look sharp, men, said John. I think they want to begin. You warmed up, Murray? Murray laughed. Yeah. Let's get to it, boys, shouted Anthony, and he clapped his hands. The boys were pure amateurs. They hadn't planned any plays or studied the other team, but they had one thing going for them, natural athleticism. Each man was skilled in most forms of sport. Some were jocks, but most, like John and Anthony, were merely highly competitive, somewhat coordinated, physically fit young men. They were all at their best today, but Murray astonished them all. He did things with a soccer ball that even skilled professionals can only do as party tricks. But he integrated those tricks into plays, plays that worked flawlessly. He utilized every appropriate surface of the body, minus the arms. And he did it all with a casual style, like it was easy. He might as well have been smoking a cigarette. He was like Ronaldinho, but short and white. John and Anthony worked harder than in any game of their life just to position themselves for assists, and it was raining assists. The man's a magician, said Anthony, panting. John simply nodded, too exhausted to speak. At the end of the game, Murray shot the ball across the pitch, against the leg of the goalkeeper, and in to score. It was a mind-blowing point. Murray's team erupted in cheer. They were already beating the other team by double digits, but it was a thrilling moment. A triumphant experience for everyone on Murray's team. The boys went to shake hands with the opposition, but the other team was not so gracious. So what'd you do? Get a pro league guy to replace Philippe? He looks familiar, but I can't place him, said Drake, the goalkeeper for the other team, and a particularly obnoxious human being. That's BS, man. It's against the league rules, offered his sidekick, Jeremy. The opposition all walked off the pitch then, pissed off, mumbling under their breath. Though one of them, Abner, stayed on the pitch. He was younger, early 20s, but he was a short, balding little fellow and by far the worst player in the game. Hey man, he said to Murray, you're incredible. The guys are saying that 
you play in the pro league and it's not fair or whatever, but I don't care. Just watching you play was a privilege. You are amazing. Thanks, kid, said Murray, and he started walking away. Suddenly, though, he stopped. He turned and walked back to the young man. Hey, kid, said Murray, didn't I kick you earlier? Yeah, but it happens a lot, said Abner. I'm quite small. Sorry about that. Your team ever win? Oh, yeah, but they, they don't usually let me play. They're short a guy this week. I'm pretty bad at sports. I love to play, but I'm worthless. I guess that's why I don't care about losing as much as those guys. I never win anything. I know the feeling, kid. At that moment, a very pregnant young woman approached Abner on the field. Are you ready to go, dear? She asked. We're supposed to be at church in an hour. Oh, yes. Sorry for, for making you wait, darling. This is Murray, said Murray. Uh, Murray, Abner continued. Murray, this is my wife, Samantha. Abner and Samantha. Somehow, sounds right, Murray said with a smirk. The young couple laughed politely. I hope so, said Abner. Are you on Abner's team? Asked Samantha. No, I was playing against him, said Murray. He's amazing, said Abner. Oh, well, maybe you could practice with Abner a little, said Samantha. He loves the game. No, no, no. We couldn't impose ourselves like that, said Abner. Uh, Perhaps we'll see each other here again, though, on the pitch. Perhaps, said Murray. Murray stood there a moment, watching Abner help his wife walk across the gnarled and knotted field. Eventually, Murray turned and walked off the pitch, too, taking up an invitation to grab cider with John and the girls. At the pub, John got a text message. It merely read, Rematch tomorrow, bring your pro. John spent the next half an hour texting, emailing, and calling the rest of the team. In the midst of beers and banal diatribes, he petitioned Murray again. I don't think so, said Murray. I don't like to play... Uh, amateurs too often. He took a drink of cider. Yeah, you have to come, said John. I think they have a new guy of their own, and I think he actually is a pro. Here, look. John showed Murray the text. Images flooded Murray's mind. Images of scoring goal after goal, manipulating the ball as Michelangelo would a chisel, and humiliating the other team again. Humiliating little Abner. No, I'm done, said Murray, and he drank again. Why? asked John. You never really played professionally, did you? Are you feeling guilty or something? No, I never played professionally. I just... I don't like humiliating those guys. Listen, they deserve it. They win everything, and they're real cocky about it. It's good to cut them down to size now and again. It wasn't such a bad argument. Humiliating them didn't really seem to bother Abner, and in fact, it did seem to cut them down to size, down to Abner's size. But that was just a secondary motivation. He had another idea, a better idea. You know what? Yeah, count me in, said Murray, downing the rest of his beer. Yes, shouted John, and he went back to furiously texting. The next day, on the pitch, Drake had his nose pressed right up against John's. John assumed that this was some kind of intimidation tactic, so he held his ground. But having Drake's nose against his seemed rather too familiar. You might win, John, Drake sneered, but I guarantee you're not going to score a single goal. John laughed. Who cares? Drake's face went cold and he backed into position. The ball dropped and the teams went at it. The opposition did have a new player. Abner was benched. This player was good. No one knew of him, but he might as well have been a pro. He was really very good. At least for the first 15 seconds, he controlled the ball. But at that 15 seconds, Murray took control. He took the ball down the field, shot a goal, and missed. The ball ricocheted off the goalpost and directly into the new player's face. His nose was broken. He was out of the game. Drake wanted to stop the match. He claimed intent on the part of Murray, which nobody bought, as it was a goal attempt and a ricochet, which seemed an impossible thing to plan. Soon, the other team had quieted Drake, and the match was able to proceed as Murray intended. After a couple of meandering plays, Murray found himself before a wide-eyed Abner. The boy looked as though he was scared to death, but also excited to play against this new hero. 
Murray pushed the ball left and Abner went after it. Murray swept his foot around to pull out the elastico as he'd done countless times before. This time, however, he decided that it would be a good time to make a mistake, and his foot missed the ball. The ball kept going left, was caught by Abner, and taken down the pitch toward the goal. Murray sprinted leisurely after him. Abner had passed it along to another player who quickly scored. Abner was ecstatic. He jumped and shouted, and a couple of teammates hugged him and patted him on the back. It was a nice thing to watch, and for a brief moment, Murray liked Earth. The game went on in a standard pattern for some time after that. John scored, Anthony scored, but Murray did little but pass benignly. Later, Murray dribbled in circles around the other players, watching Abner, waiting for him to get into the action. Finally, Abner got close enough to the goal, and Murray dribbled toward him. Abner backed off, hesitant to hazard the luck he'd met before. After a moment, though, he inched closer. Murray put on a, another fancy show and knocked the ball toward Abner. Abner struck the ball frantically, dispatching it straight into the goal. Abner couldn't believe it. He'd never scored. Now twice in one game, and against the greatest ball mechanic he'd ever seen play the game. Suddenly, the little man had confidence. Abner went after Murray ferociously after that, taking the ball from him time after time. Murray did well to seem vexed. He appeared to be genuinely struggling to control the ball, to fend off Abner. Abner looked like a star. John and Anthony continued to play well, but Murray would always lose the ball to Abner, and Abner kept scoring. At the game's end, the score stood seven goals to six. Abner had scored six of the team's seven. As they carried him off the pitch, he looked back and gave old Murray a nod. Anthony walked up near Murray then. What happened to the Murray we saw yesterday, he demanded. What happened to I can't lose? That was the most fun I've ever had losing, said Murray with a broad smile. John nudged Anthony a little and the team walked off the field a little dejected. The next morning at Chestnut Hill, Murray and Johannes walked onto the court as before. Ready for another day at the office, Murray? asked Johannes. Sure, you? Well, I'm not going to say that I didn't enjoy the vacation. How were the humans? More enjoyable than usual, actually, said Murray. Johannes called out the first score. Love all, he served the ball. Ace. The ball had rocketed over the net, just tagging the back of the baseline, barely making it in, as usual. At least, that's how Murray processed the serve. But actually, he wasn't sure. It looked out. He shook his head. Impossible. Johannes has never missed a point, ever. That's funny, he said. Could have sworn that serve was out. Murray laughed at himself for thinking such a silly thing. Johannes didn't call the score this time. He just served the ball as fast and precise as ever. Straight into the net. Murray's eyes opened wide. That was intentional. He looked up at Johannes. One of Johannes's eyebrows were raised. You finally worked it out, said Johannes with a rakish smile. Tears welled up in Murray's eyes. Johannes hit wide, long, into the net. He was going to let Murray win. Murray laughed a little to keep from crying. Before he knew it, a nearly 3,000-year-long challenge was finally over. Game, set, match, said Johannes, shaking Murray's hand over the net. Now, go take a nap. With that, Johannes took up his tennis bag and walked off the court and out of sight. The last time Murray would see him, at least for many years. Murray was usually the first to leave, but today was different. He wanted to breathe in the court one last time. It would always be a special place for him. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want the feeling to go away. Murray ran his fingers across the coarse felt of the tennis ball as he stood there. It was the first time he'd really taken the time to feel the ball in his hand. It was a lovely little thing. Murray slipped the racket into his bag, threw the leather strap over his shoulder, and marched up the hill to the clubhouse. An intense drowsiness suddenly struck him. That nap Johan recommended was starting to sound seriously tempting. There were some very comfortable, well-stuffed chairs in the club library. Murray would have a sit-down, 
Perhaps he'd finish the book that he'd been reading, The Four Million. An hour later, paramedics were running through the halls of the country club. They tried to revive Murray, but it was no use. He had, indeed, fallen asleep in one of the well-stuffed chairs in the library. At that same time, in a hospital across town, there was another team of medical professionals working just as intensely on another medical case, but the staff there was having far more success. They were helping a young woman give birth, a young woman named Samantha, wife to Abner. Samantha gave birth to a healthy baby boy that summer morning. The nurse cleaned the baby, wrapped him in a blanket, and handed him to his father. As Abner held his handsome new son in his arms, he looked upon his precious little face and said, I think we should call him Murray. The end. If you like that, uh, I have a bunch of stories like that. Some are much more, uh, some have terrible endings, but some have beautiful endings like that one. Um, And you can get it on Amazon. It's actually free if you have Amazon Prime, so go ahead and check it out. There are 10 stories in the first volume and 11 stories in the second volume. Each one has an extra story at the end, a little bonus story, which is an episodic. It continues from volume to volume. So, yeah, if you like that story, please pick up the book. And uh, I only saw three typos in the story, which is pretty good. (laughs) Uh, You know, I did go ahead and read through these uh, before publishing them, but I don't have a great eye for editing. I used to have a girl who would edit all my stories, um, my friend Amanda, but uh, she is now a very high-paid lawyer in Arizona, and she makes a lot of money doing that, but she works very long hours, and she doesn't have time to edit my stuff now. So there may be several typos in these in these stories, um, but you'll get the gist. <laughs> but for the most part, it's relatively professionally done. Um, so anyway, thanks for listening to this uh, first chapter of Straight White Christian Man, Volume 1. Good night. President Washington began this tradition in 1790 after reminding the nation that the destiny of self-government is finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. For our friends in the press who place a high premium on accuracy, let me say, I did not actually hear George Washington say that. (laughs) 